folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with comedian and actor Ray Romano. Before Ray Romano graced our television sets with Everybody Loves Raymond, he was a hustling stand-up comedian hoping to break into television like his peers Jerry Seinfeld, Tim Allen, and Roseanne. He followed all the proper steps, such as performing on late-night television, selling out road gigs, and getting featured in HBO comedy specials. But radio silence was all he got from the powers that be. After 11 years as a full-time stand-up, Ray thought, maybe this acting thing just isn't meant to be. But that's exactly when he got offered the development deal that would turn into the hit show Everybody Loves Raymond and make Ray not only the highest-paid actor in sitcom history, but one of the most recognized people in the world. Despite all of his success and fame, Ray dealt with an unexpected identity crisis when Raymond ended. As he tells it, it took about three months until the void smacked me in the head. It was this sense of, what now? Where's my passion? Where's my direction? What am I throwing my energy into now? I had this non-stop creative energy for nine years, and suddenly, I was empty. But working through the existential void turned out to be a blessing in disguise. It's what led to the creation of Men of a Certain Age, which was right where Ray was, ruminating on middle age and wondering what he was going to do next. And it led to a desire to flex his acting muscles in other, more dramatic areas. Getting people to see him as more than a sitcom actor was difficult, especially after spending nine years in the shoes of one character that was loosely based on himself. As he describes it, I didn't want to make everyone forget about my sitcom legacy because I was proud of it, but my goal was to do what I wanted. And what I wanted was to stick my little dramatic toe in there. Well, I think he stuck more than his toe in there. Since he made that decision, he's evolved into a versatile and relatable dramatic actor with his work in projects like Parenthood, Vinyl, Get Shorty, The Big Sick, and most recently Paddleton, opposite Mark Duplass. Ray joins off camera to talk about the thing that compels most performers to become performers, about how he turns real life into a comedic bit, and why it's so hard for some men to say, I love you. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Ray. Hello, Sam. Thanks for doing this. You ran out of people, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we asked my mother. She wouldn't come. Yes. Then we're like, all right. It's you and comedians in cars with coffee. Eventually, you're going to run out of guests, and I'm going to be on there. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, I wanted to have you on this show a long time. And you and I met in 2002 when I photographed you for Esquire magazine. Yes. I mean, on a golf course. Yes, running, and the, running from dogs. Running from dogs, yeah. rabid dogs. Yeah. But, you know, at the time, you were in your seventh season of Everybody Loves Raymond. Top of the world, big show, all that stuff. And I met you, and you're playing golf, and you're doing this show. And I go, oh, I know this guy. Well, cut to 17 years later, <laughs> you have had a next chapter of your life since that show that I think nobody could have predicted. And I absolutely love the work you've been doing. I mean, I loved Parenthood. Oh, thanks. I loved Big Sick. Um, Get Shorty is one of my favorite shows on television. I had Chris oh, O'Dowd man. on the show. Um, Vinyl, and, and even this new film with Mark Duplass, Paddleton. You've done work that's been totally unexpected and not what you would think would be the next chapter for someone that came up the way you came up. And so I just wanted to start out with that moment sort of after Everybody Loves Raymond ended and where your mindset was, and I guess specifically, how long did it last to be sort of rich and idle and and like enjoying your success? Three months. Three months. I know exactly. (laughs) Really? 
Yeah, yeah, because when Raymond ended, so this is nine years now of, of Raymond, right? Right. And the first year, I didn't live here. When my family didn't come out, because we didn't know if it was going to get canceled. And right before Raymond, uh, within a year before Raymond, I was fired from news radio. Had Phil Hartman and Maura Tierney. I remember that, Andy yeah. Dick was on it, yeah. And when I read for it, I knew this was going to go, because of, of all the people involved. And this was my first time getting a callback, getting a thing, getting a testing for the studio, getting the part. I got the part. So you hadn't done any other acting work other no, than... No, I had done stand-up and some workshops. There was an acting class that a, a teacher, Joanna Bexon was her name, in, in New York, who, who specifically gave classes for comedians. So I was in there with David Tell was in there, uh, uh, Nick DiPaolo, Mike Sweeney. So that was my experience with acting, but I was a stand-up. Um, so I got the, I, I read for news radio and I got it. Uh, and this was, a, I'm doing stand-up for 10 years now. Um, and I'm making a living, but I'm not, you know, my, I have, I have uh, three little kids now. Right. I was making a living doing stand-up. I was right. full-time stand-up. When I say making a living, you know, it fluctuates. One year I made, you want the figure? Sure. Now at this point, you know, a good year, I barely got to a hundred grand, maybe, and then uh, on a on a mediocre year, I got seventy five grand, you know, eight grand. But I had a I had a small house, wife and kids. I, I, we're not poor, but we're also not you know uh, uh, on easy street. We're, we're we're I'm getting by and I'm doing what I love to do. Right. And then the audition for news radio comes. The guy he, he had seen me on one of the stand up comedy shows, and I got called in to read, and I and he loved it and. He said, you're it, man, and I thought he was, you know, I thought it was showbiz talk. Right. Uh, but sure enough, I got it. And I got it at, uh, I, I believe it was eight, eight thousand, seven thousand an episode. And I called my wife and we were like, woo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is, it still sounds like good money. It yeah. is good money, yeah. Um, and I knew the show was going to get picked up because... Like I said, it was Phil Hartman, James Burroughs was directing it, it was NBC. So I go out, they're filming the pilot, and at the table read, I felt like, not that I was in over my head, I just felt, oh boy, the, the, like, the magic of the audition, when I auditioned, uh, it just felt, hmm, I, I, that doesn't feel like the same thing, you know? I felt like I was pushing it a little, eh, whatever. So then we, the next day we rehearse, the first day of rehearsal. And it's going okay, I guess, and Andy Dick is there, and we're ad-libbing a couple lines, and I'm getting a couple extra laughs that aren't there on the paper, and I'm thinking, this feels pretty good, these laughs I'm getting. But I, I'm telling you, I, inside there you was a, a feeling, feeling, not quite, yeah, it's not, I'm not in the pocket. But again, you know, they're la the director's laughing and this and that. And that was one day of rehearsal. Okay, the blah, go, go to the hotel. My call's at 9 a.m. the next day for rehearsal. And at 6 a.m. in the hotel, the phone rang. And I, as soon as it rang, I knew. I said, <laughs> and it was my manager. And he said, hey. And I go, oh, no. <laughs> and he goes, yeah. He, and he said, listen. And it, was the, it sounds like a cliche, but it was that line. I spoke to so-and-so. They, they're going in a different direction with the character. 
<laughs> and I'm like, where are they going? Uh, I'll go. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm not, this sounds like bull, but there was a little bit of relief. There was a little bit of relief because I just felt I was out of place there. I, I just, I don't know if, whether I wasn't ready or whatever, but it, it just didn't feel right. And yeah, they let me go, and I flew home. And you know, my wife and I we were like, "All right, well, I'm still, I'm still doing stand up, you know." And when that happens, do you think like, I'm not TV guy, and and you have to like go back? Yeah. Like, did your stand up career then look like, oh? Yeah, did it, did it feel not as fun? Well, here's what happened. I actually got an agent because of that. Because of that, an agent took me on. So I, because I got that, so there was there even though you were there fired. was something positive from it. Yes, but I was hired first. You know what I mean? But what did so, you take away from that inside? Did you feel like it's just not the right fit, or did you feel like oh they saw something where I just I can't do this? Well, in my head I wasn't. I'm an actor. What does this mean? This means I'm not an actor because in my head I was a stand-up. Right. I was you know at that time I had done the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I had done an. Uh, an HBO Young Comedian special. Yep. And I, I, it took me a while to get there, but in my heart, I, I felt, I'm a professional stand-up, you know? I know how to do this. Uh, I wanted to act, but it wasn't the goal. But uh, yes, it was there, it was there. I, I wasn't, it wasn't like, I, I don't know how Jerry Seinfeld felt, but I don't think Jerry Seinfeld was thinking, I have to become an actor. I, don't, I still don't think he does, uh, you know? But that door, if it presented itself, I was going to go through with that door to become an actor, you know? Well, uh, and I think that at that time when you and Jerry were coming up, there was still that that very demarcated path of success of you go and you kill on Carson and, and then... Yeah, mine was a little late. It wasn't as much when I did. I did it six months before he retired, you know? I did right. it in 91. You know, back in the early 80s, you did you did Tonight Show and, then, and it changed your life, you know, or set in the 70s, definitely. Um, for me, that was the achievement, you know, it was the mountaintop was being right. on The Tonight Show. I grew up with Johnny Carson. It was, it was surreal. It was, un, uh, it was unbelievable, you know. It was a big moment in my career. But I did have kind of an idea of, you know, because they were giving out, you know, Tim Allen, Roseanne, Seinfeld. They were giving out shows and they were signing stand-up to development deals to develop shows. So that was there, you know, in the 10th year, that, that was in my head that may, this is the next step. So now it becomes the 11th year I'm doing stand-up, which is not really that long, but you're, 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 you, you've been doing it now, and, and if it's going to come, I thought, well, now would be the time. Uh, I mean, yes, I got fired, but now I have an agent. So now he said, come out for pilot season. Okay. So this was like December. This was early December when I got fired. So now pilot season is like February, January, February yep. then, you know? Yeah. So this is my first time I go out for pilot season. And that's where I met and became buddies with Kevin James. Because I saw him at, we're both New Yorkers, but he said, yeah, I'm here for pilot season too. So me and him hung out for like two months, you know, once a week, go on an audition, get nothing. And then I went back home, you know, striking out at pilot season. But... I, it was a good experience. I went on, I don't know, I don't know how many auditions, seven, eight auditions. Right. Never really feeling like I landed it. And I was like, all right, you know, I, I love, I'm still lucky enough to do what I love. I, I, I love doing stand-up. Does it sometimes feel a little stale? Yeah. It was a little let down. 
And then I got booked to do Letterman. And that was uh, May, I believe, of that same year. And was that your first time on Letterman? First time on Letterman. Okay. And I'm hard on myself, but the, I had a really good first spot on Letterman. And that was when I was like, okay, you know what? I've done every, I've done every TV show that I've done. I did every stand-up TV show there was. You know, even at the Improv, Comic Strip Live, HBO, Comedy right. Show, Tonight Show. People know I'm out there. If they're giving out development deals and production companies. And if I don't get one now, who, you know, who knows? Maybe it might not happen. And it was Letterman, and I really did well. I hate saying it, but I did. Um, and I just thought, well, if it doesn't happen now, I don't know. Maybe it just wasn't meant to be. And thank God Letterman was watching, because <laughs> it was a week later, Saturday afternoon, the phone rings in my house, and it's Rob Burnett, who was the head of, yeah. you know. Head of Worldwide producer. Pants. Yeah producer of Letterman. Right, right. At my home. I was in a backyard, shirtless. My kids are running around. And my, I think my wife said, it's Robert Neff. And he said, uh, listen, Dave really liked what he saw. And we want to consider signing you to a development deal. And don't, you know, if anyone else comes asking, just let us have first shot. And I said, I'll, nobody's asking. I'll verbally commit to you guys right now, you know. And I signed a deal with them, and that led to Everybody Loves Raymond. But anyways, what I was trying to say was, so the first year I go back and forth, back and forth, because we don't know if it's going to get canceled or not. And my wife's three little kids, you know. And then we get, I have twins. I have a, a three-year-old and twin one-year-olds. So as excited as my wife is, she's not happy that, right. I, that I'm over there. That's hard. She's, yeah. You know, I remember calling up once and said, yeah, we, we had a... Long day today, blah, blah, blah. And she said, oh, yeah? She goes, I just wiped plum off the ceiling. <laughs> Not kidding. That was exact exact quote from her. Okay, all right. You know, That's when you can never call and go, oh, God, you can't believe who I just had dinner with. No, no, no. <laughs> I learned that on the road during stand-up. Right. When, when three little kids, when you call, when that call home can have no glee in your voice. You can have no glee. <laughs> there was one time we were in uh, the improv in D.C., buddy of mine and I was working and he took me skiing he took me skiing <laughs> right. so then I had a call home and my again twin boys daughter crazy and I got a call home and tell her I'm I went skiing today and I don't want to do that but I don't want to lie to her and she goes and I could just hear in her voice it's been a rough day she goes anyway what'd you do today <laughs> I said and I this is exactly what I said I I, uh, Tom uh, Tom took me to this hill. <laughs> I didn't want to say ski. He took me to this hill and we... Omission know, you, is not lying. You go down it. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, second year we get picked up for Raymond. And my wife says, screw this, we're going out there, you know. We're going to move. We're going to make the jump. So You're we, like, there goes the ski trip. Yes, <laughs> and we moved out there. Okay, so now cut to Raymond ends. But it's like I was in a bubble. It was like I was in a submarine because I was, you know, in the writer's room, in the edit room. I was on the stage. The show is all consuming. The, the family is all consuming. So now it just ends. And it's like you come out of this, this submarine and you're like, this is where I live? You know, you're like, my kids are 12? You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, right. it's, it's really a weird feeling. But there's also excitement because now you have all this, you have time. You got money now, you got a little bit of fame, whatever. This is gonna be cool, let's see what happens. You're imagining all the, all the ways your life's gonna be great. Yes, 
And my shrink at the time had the insight or the hindsight to say to me, instead of coming once a week, do you want to come twice a week? And I'm like, no. I go, I, I have a hard enough time thinking of things to say once a week. To right. You. Long story short, three months later, I'm going twice a week. <laughs> it's not enough. <laughs> it took about three months until the void just smacked me in the head and just this sense of purpose was, and, and what now? Where's my passion now? Where's my direction? I had this creative energy going nonstop for nine years, and now it was just this empty kind of uh, uh, identity crisis. And I just, whew, yeah, it was, it was a little rough. And then it was a couple months of just kind of, you know, I, f I fell down that hole and... When you say fell down that hole, what was the, the critical voice or the inner voice at the bottom of that hole? Well, I mean, I've had rough patches emotionally in my life. So like in my late, I wanna say in my uh, mid 20s, I had a pretty rough patch of this kind, same kind of feeling of who, you know, it's an existential crisis. But it was just this feeling of just lost, and 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 I had to you know find help then, and you know I crawl out of that, and then I find stand up and this and that, and everything's fine. It was kind of a little bit of falling back into this feeling I had in my twenties, uh, um, you know, just this uh, kind of empty. Uh, a, a void of, of identity, this identity void, which, which really, I mean, I, I don't know why, because uh, it wasn't like I, I, I couldn't find something to do, but it was just, I didn't know what. And it's weird because you don't want it to be that you have to, you know, you want to be content just being who you are, you know, you don't want to have to have your work define you or this, and it doesn't, but but it just was it just was a screeching halt of all this uh you know all this stuff that i that i that i was giving out this creative energy this work this stress and i remember talking to my well i you know i was working it out and i was talking to my one of the writers on the show mike royce and we talked about it and i talked about my crap that i was going through and I don't know if whether it was him or me, but we both decided, let's let's write let's write about it about exactly what you're yes. going through, which and, became and men of a certain through, age. Became men of a certain right. age, yeah. Hey, folks! Just wanted to pop into the conversation here for a minute and interrupt myself and poor Ray Romano and talk about this week's sponsor, HoneyBook. If you run a creative business. You know how to make your clients look good. But if you're struggling with tedious administrative tasks, let HoneyBook do the work and make you look good. Now, this is a thing that every small business suffers from. Everyone spends so much time and effort making sure the client is happy and that the work is great and that there's an opportunity for a relationship and repeat business. But what often happens is we can get bogged down in all the little administrative tasks that if we were more efficient about, we could spend more time on the creative side on the relationship side 
and the things that really matter. Well, now there's HoneyBook, invented for creative professionals like you. It can help you do the work of those tasks and make you look good. If you have a great idea for a business, what's holding you back? If the thought of all that administration work is overwhelming, HoneyBook is here to help you get your plan off the ground. So HoneyBook is an online business management tool that lets you control your client communication, your bookings, your contracts, and your invoices all in one place. By the way, I wish I had this when I was starting out as a photographer and a director because it's a mess trying to figure out your own business and HoneyBook makes this process so easy. If you're a creative freelancer or a small business owner, HoneyBook helps you stay organized with custom templates and automation tools. You can even use HoneyBook to consolidate services you already use, like QuickBooks, Google Suite, and MailChimp. Over 75,000 photographers, designers, event professionals, and other entrepreneurs have saved hundreds to thousands of hours a year. And it's so customizable that it fits your business like it was designed for your business. It is your business, just better, with HoneyBook. So right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off your first year with the promo code OFFCAMERA. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to HoneyBook.com and use the promo code OFFCAMERA for 50% off your first year. And most importantly, with HoneyBook, you can get paid faster and work smarter. And isn't that what we all want? Go to HoneyBook.com, use the promo code OFFCAMERA, and check it out. Now back to the show. I was curious if you had this epiphany that you would have to reinvent yourself totally to, you know what I mean? Rather than this idea that you would just go find another safe submarine. No, I didn't want to. I mean, I didn't think I have to reinvent myself, but I knew I didn't want to do a four camera sitcom again. I, right. I, I knew that. But did you worry that maybe that's all, oh, like, yeah. all you were built to do? Oh, hell yeah. You I did? Still, no, I, I didn't worry that that's all I was built to do. I, I worried that that's all people are going to think or want to see me in. Like, you've been in their homes yeah. for so yeah. long, they're like, they're, we're only going to let him be that guy. Yes, I was guilty of that myself when we, were, when we would cast for men of a certain age. A name would come up of a guy on a sitcom, and I was like, mm, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah it's, right. it's hard to see that, you know? Right. That was the blessing with Martin Scorsese and Vinyl. He had never heard of me. Not hadn't seen the show. Never heard of me. Is that possible? Yes. Yes, it is. It is because <laughs> we checked. We checked. My agent said, oh, so he's never seen the show. And, and, and his casting agent, she said, no, he's never, he's never heard of him. You know, it's Martin Scorsese. He's a film genius. And I'm not going to be so pompous to think, how the hell has he never heard of me? <laughs> um, but that's what got me the job, I think, is, is he saw my tape without any of that. But anyway, yes. What you're talking about is that when you are super successful at something, immediately that becomes your identity. And yeah. for someone who hasn't been in that situation, they, it's probably hard to understand how, how constricting that is. Well, the thing that was lucky about it was I was a writer also, and it wasn't that I had to wait around for someone else to offer me something. My goal wasn't, I got to do something that makes them forget about that, because I was proud of, the, I love the legacy, uh, uh, of my sitcom legacy. You sure. know? My goal was to do what I wanted to do, and what I wanted to do was, was stick my little dramatic toe in there. The one thing I will say is, this is one of the, I mean, uh, I, was, I was lucky to I'm, have stand-up. You know, I, I can't think of how hard it is for an actor 
who when that goes away, you know, has no other outlet, you know? Yeah. I still had that, but I knew I wanted to explore uh, other acting things. Let's jump forward to parenthood because in doing my research about you, I found out something I never would have guessed, which is that you reached out to them, <laughs> yeah. to Jason Kadams. Yeah. And I love what he did on Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. Yes. And, and were you just watching that show yeah. and loving it? And you're like, I'm going to call well, first, him. And first, I loved Friday Night Lights. Me too. And I loved the style. And I heard about how they shot things and they didn't block. They did minimal rehearsing. And so when we were doing Men of a Certain Age, we said, let's try to emulate that, let's try. And so we spoke to him and said, could we come and shadow you guys? Ah. And we went to Austin and we spent two days there just watching. And now Men of a Certain Age gets, we win the Peabody Award, which means you're gonna get canceled in two months. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the curse of the Peabody? Yeah, because it means it's a quality thing that nobody's watching. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's the, the truth, if that's the rule, but... We're going to look that up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll bet there's... Uh, there's a correlation there. Yeah. But, uh, so then I'm watching Parenthood, and I have this... I've got Jason's number. I'm not going to say we're friends, best friends, but i got Jason Kadem's number in my book. And I'm watching the finale of season three, and I just call him up to congratulate him. And I said, hey, man, love the finale. Really great. And then... Half joking, I said, hey, by the way, Men of a Certain Age has gotten, just got canceled. I'm unemployed. If, if, if you can squeeze me in anywhere, and I'm really joking, but I'm not going to turn it down if he thinks I'm not joking. <laughs> and by the way, so when I got on uh, cast on news radio, it was my salary was going to be $7,000 an episode, right? right? So then we get to my first year of Raymond. I'm the least paid cast member, except for Brad Garrett, me and Brad Garrett. You know, the show gets picked up. It's a hit. We renegotiate. It gets kind of crazy. I've read these it numbers. It gets crazy. It's yeah. crazy. It goes boom. It goes boom. Until the eighth, ninth year, I'm, I'm in the Guinness Book of records for the highest paid the highest sitcom yes. contract I, I hate ever. To say these numbers, but you know, no, but you, it, you've heard the numbers, right? Right. It's crazy. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Parenthood. And they go, we can't afford whatever. I don't give a shit. That's fine. I'm, I'm doing it because I want to be part of this. Whatever. The final season of Parenthood, they're only going to do 13 episodes, and they're only going to have me in three. Right. And Jason Kadams. I don't think it was Jason. I think it was Dylan, this other guy, the uh, the line producer, and he goes, guy. He goes, I'm so sorry, Ray. He goes, we want you in all of them. We want you in all of them. I go, I'll do all of them. He goes, but they, to do all of them, 13, they would only give you top of show. I go, whatever. Well, how much is that? 7,000 and I'm telling you, full circle. Full circle. From the highest mountain peak. <laughs> but that's where I started. That's where I started. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I took it. I took it for But the, you know what? You yeah. look at that decision you made, and it was brilliant because... It opened up a path that not only leads you to all this interesting work, but it allows you to explore exactly what you were talking about. Like, like on Parenthood, you play a, a photographer who starts helping out um, your girlfriend's nephew, Max, who has Asperger's. Mm -hmm. And then in reading the literature about Asperger's, you start wondering if you have it right, too. Right. And I was curious from the start if that was arced in there because... The <laughs> And I don't know if this is a compliment to your acting <laughs> or a question yeah. about who you are, but but once that once that was revealed as as a viewer, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. He's like yeah. he's a guy that can't access his emotions, and yeah. and there was a real believability to that guy that 
actually erased Everybody Loves Raymond from my mind, which was not a, an easy thing to do. Oh, thanks. And I was wondering if you had to rethink your whole process for what a, like when you go from a leading comedic actor to a, a fringe character actor that has, you know, sort of a mysterious style to him, mm. how you sort of, you know, put that all together? Well, first of all, the answer it wasn't written in the, the character description or the arc. Jason had told me this idea of this photographer who's just a bit of a misanthrope, shall we say, yeah. you know? Which is a spectrum-ish uh, yeah. trait anyway. Yes. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I feel like a lot of guys are, are probably close to, you know, they have trouble with emotions and uh, expressing themselves, you know? So so there's a little bit of that in a, in a, in a lot of us. Um, but then when... Yes, when we, uh, you know, the character became more evolved and the s stories became more evolved, it was Jason who came up with that idea. You know, that's his, 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 his son. son has yeah. that, that character is based on his son. And it was very interesting because as soon as we did that, uh, we, th they got letters. They got so many people saying, like, thank you for addressing this issue of adult Asperger, which nobody really, uh, you know, whenever you think of Asperger's and autism, you think of kids. kids, yeah. And it helps a lot of people realize, uh, you know, what what they're going through, why they're going through it, whatever, and, and can address it and speak to it. Um, they asked me to speak at one of their uh, conferences or meetings, you know, and I, and I was flattered. But You're I, like, my fee is $7,000. <laughs> $7,000, yeah. No, no. No, it was, really, it was really a special thing that when, he, when he did that. And what was good was when Jason, I, I'm glad that Jason didn't tell me about this. Because he didn't know about Yes, it. because when he found right. out, I found out. <laughs> yeah, the character, yeah. And like I said, there's probably a little bit of that in a, in a lot of guys. Now, now this movie Paddleton, yes. which is even a, a deeper... Uh, With Mark Duplass, and this yes. is splashed on the front page of Netflix right now, and it's a really beautiful two-hander between you and Mark. Uh, it's a platonic male love story about a guy who finds out he has terminal cancer, and yeah. that's played by Mark Duplass, and you're his neighbor and his best friend and his only friend, right? and you decide to help him we're, deal with his death. We're both our only friends. He's my right. only friend also. And that's what I think about you that is extremely watchable in Get Shorty and Paddleton and Vinyl is that there's an authenticity or a, or a, I feel like there's so much more you could always do that you don't do that makes me go, that guy's real. And in Paddleton, there is, there's that same nature of, of, oh, that guy, that has to be real what he's doing because it's so <laughs> understated and yet it, it's, you know what I mean? I mean, it's, uh, uh no, I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. Sure. But of course, you draw from somewhere. But you know, you do have to act. I guess for that guy in Paddleton, there's a loneliness. No matter, no matter how popular you are, no matter how many friends you have, everybody's got that little, that little part of them that feels lonely and feels alone and and feels insecure. Uh, some more than others, and. I, I, I certainly have it. Uh, I, you know, uh, my saying w was, uh, is uh, if my father had hugged me once, I'd be an accountant. 
<laughs> you know, there's, uh, so, so I have, yes, I have uh, uh, internal things that I can draw on to get to this guy. Um, that crystallizes it, actually. There is something very relatable that you find in these people, whether it's the washed-up producer on Get Shorty or this neighbor in Paddleton, where there is something broken or missing yeah. or hole inside that I think if you didn't really have that, it wouldn't be that well, easy it, to relate, and it's, yeah. it's a surprise. I mean, it's time. a common denominator for all my... These guys, I, I remember seeing Gary Oldham say talk about how he does a little backstory, and he always uses his father. He goes, I gotta find something new, I keep using my father. And I feel the same thing. I, for every character, I've used some uh, dysfunctional or some kind of connection to the father that was missing. Uh, whether it's the, uh, the, the Get Shorty producer who, who tries to project this uh, air of confidence and and success, but inside there's, there's this uh, uh, relationship with his father that he never had, uh, you know. So I, I try to instill that in every guy, some vari variation, of, variation of that. Um, you know, I don't know how much more I can do with that. I mean, uh, well, it's um, working. <laughs> yeah. What I relate to is I think that because you and I are similar. I have, I have similar issues with that, with my father and, right. and wanting his approval. And I think that it is tiring to spend your life trying to prove yourself. I wonder if uh, the, that element of, of, of you know, a parent, whether it's a father or a mother, where there's, there's something missing, I wonder if that just makes uh, you want approval from others, like, like, like makes, makes you a performer, makes you, makes you, you know, subconsciously, you, you're drawn to that. I don't know. I, I, I feel like that's a com with comics, I just feel like there's a, a common denominator there somewhere. It's not a rule, but I just feel like there's something that was missing, you know, where they get it, they get it on stage. That, that's kind of what I was, one, one of the, my, my theories was if, if all parents, if there were no kind of dysfunctional parents, we would have no performers at all. We'd have no entertainment. We'd all have to be in a bowling league because that'd be <laughs> the only thing you could do at night. My, bro my brother, for instance, who's a police officer, he has told me on occasion, I would rather face a man with a gun then do what you do, and then get on stage in, in front of people. Now, I don't know if that's fear of uh, speaking or whatever, but I still think if you break it down, we kind of have the same, me and my brother have the same kind of need uh, in that sense, the, the need for approval. And, and you're right about constantly trying to prove yourself. It's, you know, it's uh, the, the old cliche, you're only as good as your last show. Right. Is so freaking true, man. For me, you know, I'll tell you another story. Yeah. So I've been, so I've done stand-up for 30 years. You would think if I have a bad show, I can brush it off because I know what a bad show does. My wife, a couple years ago, so my kids are in grammar school and they're having a fundraiser. 
And of course she volunteers me to perform at the fundraiser. And it's in a venue that is not conducive for stand-up comedy. I mean, you, you know enough that you know it, it can't take place anywhere. Sure, of yes. course. It can't be in a rock club where there's a bar here, a bar here, and people are milling about and standing. Right. That's where you can have a rock band, but you can't stand. Anyway, that's where it is, and it's all the people that are in the school that I'm going to see every day for the next eight years, ten years, which is the worst scenario at all for a comic, to, to have people you know in the audience. And I get Brad Garrett. I, I did something for his school, so, I'm, so I turn it on him. I go, Brad, because they want me to do 40 minutes. I go, I'm not doing 40 <laughs> minutes. I go, I'll have Brad come up and do 15, and I'll do 25. So I ask Brad, yeah. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen Brad. He's the funniest guy. Oh, yeah. I photographed And, he's, and he's the blue. He's blue. He's Don Rickles. He's this guy, that guy, oh, this yeah. guy. Yeah. Uh-oh. And I say to Brad, <laughs> Brad, do me a favor. And I love, Brad's my best friend. I said, can you just do your material tonight? Because he, he does material. He goes, whatever you want, Ray. And I go, okay. So he gets on stage, not one bit of material. Immediately, where'd you get the fake boobs? That's this guy. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I saw you here. Uh, he's going on and on. Half the people love it. Half the people are, are like, you know, um, the guys are cracking up. Some of the teachers and the women. Uh, Anyway, needless to say, I go on after him. Not good. And when I say not good, I mean when you're in front of the people you're going to see for the rest of, you know, for the next eight years, every morning when you drop your kids off, yeah. you have to have a, a, a minimum nine out of ten, nine and a half out of ten. If you have a six and a half, seven out of ten, that's a disaster. Even an eight, even a seven and a half, eight. When you say disaster, what are they thinking about you? They're like, oh, he... Mm, this is what he used to do. He made a living this way, you know. Uh, and, and and again, it was devastating. I, now I've done. I've been on freaking the Tonight Show. I've been here. This is the most devastating set for me to have to live through after. And I remember telling my wife, I go, listen to me. Next time they're gonna have a fundraiser, uh, and they ask if I can perform. You, I want you to ask them how much do they think they're gonna raise that night. And I'm going to write a check for that amount because I am never <laughs> doing this again, ever. Um, but it's like, it's the truth. You doesn't matter. doesn't matter that you've, you've been this successful stand-up for t- 28, 30 years. You, that's what you take with you right there, that last show. You have to prove. What do you think keeps you coming back to it? Because you... Uh you just recently did a new Netflix special, which was your first one in 23 years. And yes. what keeps you coming back to having to prove yourself again and again in mm. that medium? Well, I don't want to give the wrong uh, appearance here that I need to do stand-up just because I need to hear them cheer for me. That's, that's not the case. If I have a bad set, I, I, did, a, I did a charity in, in New York, and it wasn't in a great venue, and it went okay. And I was just going to go back to my apartment that night, and I thought... I don't know if I can go home yet. I, I went to the cellar, the comedy cellar, and I did a pop-in set there just to feel the juice again, you know? Yeah, I didn't want to go to sleep on that set. Uh, right, but, so it's not about the audience approval, but it's about but, you knowing that you still uh, are, can live yes, up to your own but, expectations or your own Yeah, but it's standards. also part of the, uh, uh, the whole experience of writing and, and creating material. I, get, I still get a high from that. I still get a high from, from performing and... and, and and actually creating bits that don't exist, and now you have this thing. Uh, um, 
I mean, that's still enjoyment for me. And if you're going to put a gun to my head and say, are you an actor or are you a comedian? If I have to choose one, I, I feel like I, I, I know I'm a comedian. In my soul, I know I'm a comedian. In my, you know, I, I know that's what uh, I'm a pro at. I still love acting and I'm still learning as an actor. Uh, um, I don't know if I can learn more as a stand-up. I can, I can change, I can evolve, I can, you know, writing, my writing changes, my, my point of view changes, that all changes. The technique of doing stand-up, I, I feel like, I hate sounding like this, but I feel like I've mastered that. Sure. You know? and, and, and even saying that, you know, if you haven't done it in a while, you still got to get out and, and flex those muscles and, and get them in shape. Is it in your nature, you think, from childhood that you were going to look at any situation around you and twist it and turn it and start turning the gears? Is this a bit? Is this not? I mean, do you think that that's just the way your, your brain works? What works for me is uh, my son calls me up and he's ran out of gas on the highway on the 101 and he's uh, very la-di-da about it and I'm like panicking. Joe, what's the traffic like? And he says, well, uh, behind me it's bad, but it's moving in front of me. Okay. <laughs> he, write, he says that. I'm right. still panic, panic, panic. Stop. I write it down. I write that down and I put it in my book and when it's time to, I'm going to go work out at one of the clubs, I look at, and I want to get some new stuff, I look at it, and then I elaborate on that. Then comes that part where you sit and, and say, okay, let's work on this, but it's like, work, let's work on this bit. Um, and, I, and I just say, it, for me, what works is just saying it out loud uh, and saying it wrong, saying, saying, saying it lame five times. Yeah, my son... Uh, uh, God, he doesn't know how to drive. No, that doesn't work. And, and, and then come up with, oh, you know what? This could tie in with when I talk about him, how he doesn't shower <laughs> and, and being 16 years old. And then, and then I'll, I'll, you know what? You know what will tie in? I'll segue that into, and now he has a license. Why are we giving 16-year-olds licenses? So I'll, I'll feel that out. And then, so I have those bullet points. And then, like, a lot of times just driving to the club with my buddy, I'll say it out loud more, and something else will come out. Does it help to have an audience member there with you, or a, sorry, not my an buddy, audience member? Yeah, it helps. It helps. To it helps my, to have someone in the room. Yeah, one of my stand-up buddies, Tom. So uh, you, you don't go up to your wife and say, "Listen to this bit." I don't say, "Listen to this bit." Sometimes I try to trick them and like engagement a conversation. Just say it, yeah. <laughs> and you're actually working yeah. it out. Or to somebody else, you know, to my, my assistant, somebody, don't tell them I'm doing a bit, but I say it, and then I, I get to the funny part, and I make it sound like I'm making it up right there, and then I say, then they laugh at it, I go, you think that's funny? Yeah. Is that like a bit? You think that's a bit? Yeah. They say, they say yeah, that'd be funny, and then you go up the stage, and it's not a bit, and you go, you freaking lied to me, man. <laughs> <laughs> Do you record them and listen back? Like I when record you go when I go when I go on this when I if I'm doing new material, yes, I record it and bring it home, because a lot of times, yes, the 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 writing you do on stage is sometimes that you know where you want to go, 
I don't know exactly the, the wording I'm going to do it. And sometimes you nail it. I go, oh, shit, that was perfect. So I want to hear it back. And then I write it down. I go, that's the perfect way to get into that bit. Um, it happened the other day. I did a charity uh, and I had a new bit. And, and I said, uh, am I going to start talking about this? And it just came out perfect. So I wrote it down. Yeah. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes you think you have it and then you're not even working on it. But six months later, you find a different way to set it up. You go, oh, shit, that's even better. And so it, it, it changes even then, you know? Does it remain mysterious to you when it works, why it works? Like Yeah. I mean, yes. There's, there's, it's still, you know, just... I get, I get a, a high from that when I do a bit the first time, and I have no idea now, it's kind of like jumping off a cliff. You don't, you're going to pull the chute and you don't know if it's going to open, you know? And if they laugh, the chute opens and you land safely. If it doesn't, you fall, but then you climb right back up. But it's funny because sometimes I've tried, me and my buddy, we try to analyze, why does it work this way and it doesn't work that way? And the closest thing is, is, is it's the, like music. It's music. Why doesn't this note follow that note? Why is that melodic and this isn't? You know, it's the same. It's kind of the same. It's, it's, it's really like uh, finding the music, finding the music to it. Yeah. But what, what makes it funny, though? Somebody, somebody asked me that question. What makes it so funny? Like, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to analyze it. Do you not want to know? <laughs> no. I think we laugh because we see ourselves. And, yeah. Well, and that's, for that... me, that's what works. For me, it, it's it's people identify with it, and then you're kind of halfway there, and then you just got to get them. You, you still got to make it funny. <laughs> like with the, the thing with my son driving, that was, that was word for word. Like the other thing he said the other night, he said. Um, he came home at 6 a.m. So now he's 20, right? He's yeah. 21. Came home at 6 a.m. And I said, Dad, uh, he, I said, I was up. And I go, Joe, you're coming home at 6 a.m.? And he just keeps walking in his room and he looks at me and goes, for now, and goes in the room. And I'm like, <laughs> that is so weird, funny, and what? how can I make that into a bit? And I said, what's the perfect setup? And I thought about it and I thought the perfect setup is this, I go, I can't tell if he's the dumbest kid in the world or the deepest. He might be the deepest. And it blew my mind. I didn't know. I go, he, he's right. Time has no meaning. And, and I went back to my, the bedroom and my wife said, did you find out where he was? And I was like, where are any of us? Where, are we here? Are we even here? Yeah. Um, but Your all son was just him. cracked open yes. The, the, yes. the existential void. was say, for now, void. for now, was his only thing he said. But, um, but that's how I, that's mostly the majority of, my, of, of the material. I, 
uh, it's usually family stuff or it's wife stuff. Yeah. And I just think that could be a bit right there. Well, you've always used very personal subject matter. I mean, your entire TV show is based on your family and a giant chunk of your most recent Netflix special is about your wife. And I do wonder if you can create some tension in your own marriage by, by sharing these events because you, you do say at one point in your special, you say, it's all autobiographical. I wish it wasn't, but it was. Yes. And, and I, you know, it, it must be sort of weird to be your family. <laughs> well, people have inquired, how does your wife feel? And I, I say, whenever she, there's not many times she complains, but um, whenever she does, what I always tell her is to uh, go cry on a bag of money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it just gets it right down yeah. to brass. No, but, but that's, that's all. That's so old for me. I've, I've said that many times. But uh, she never, I got to give her credit. There, there, there probably is a one, two times where she has said, where you've crossed do the line. not say, or she warns me, don't say this. Oh, really? Don't say this on stage, you know? Um, or like in Raymond, she goes, I better not see this in a show. And I'm saying, well, it's, come on, it's year eight. We need stories, you know? <laughs> um, by, by the way, everybody on Raymond did. The, you know, Phil Rosenthal, who ran the, ran the show, he would come in and say, what happened, guys? What happened at home? Anything? You know, and did you have an argument? Did you do anything? And, and you know, and, and I remember in like year eight, Tucker Cawley, one of the writers said, I think I'm having an argument. I think, you know, we went on vacation. We went like a, for a two day thing. We came home and the suitcase was, is on the stair step. And she put it on the stair step. And I thought, you know, because I was carrying some other stuff, she's not leaving that there for me to pick up. But she didn't say anything to me, so I didn't say anything to her. And it's three days later, and the suitcase is still on the steps. And Phil said, that's a story, man. That is a story. And, and Tucker won an Emmy for that episode. Amazing. For the, the suitcase story, <laughs> yes. So, so they all got in trouble. But, you know, my kids, my kids are... Uh, they love it. They, they, they kind of, I, I, I always run it by. I always say, you okay with me talking about that? They go, yeah. They, they kind of feel left out if they're not in it. <laughs> now, having said that, they're getting older now, so I do have to have some discretion, you know, right? with what I'm going to talk about. Well, yeah. you know, we started to get on your dad a little bit, and I was curious if when you were young and you were discovering comedy, if you were if you sort of felt like the black sheep a little bit in your own family, or if you had sort of this secret dream that maybe if you brought it up at the dinner table, it wasn't like, oh yeah, go off and become a comedian. And No, the dynamic at home wasn't like that because we didn't have those conversations. My father was, uh, you know, he, he was very undemonstrative. He had, a, he had a tough, my father, I gotta cut him some slack. He had a rough time. His his dad left him when he was two years old, so he didn't have a father. So he had a he had a tough time uh, uh, just showing showing any any kind of uh, uh, emotion, except for you know he could he could show anger, but uh, he had a tough time. And and having said that, when I got older, he became the funniest guy to me. You know, when we were young, we were. Not he was not funny. He was we were we were kind of frightened of him, you know. He was the disciplinarian, and, and he was he could 
he could he could get off fly off the handle a little bit. But he was we weren't there was not a lot of of that kind of uh, involvement with him with us. My mom my mom was all about please you have to stay in college you have to do this and and worried about us that way. My father was just trying to you know make it and 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 keep the house alive and keep this alive and he really he really didn't uh have much involvement in that with us um so when i started comedy they didn't you know they knew peripherally you know and would he I, come I, to your shows not till way in you oh know? really yeah yeah they were there when i won the emmy and uh, i got nominated four years in a row and I lost, and I would fly them out each time for the week. They've come to the Emmys, and the night I won, I had to present first. I presented an Emmy, and so I had my shtick, my banter was uh, telling the crowd, I go, listen, I know I'm nominated later, and I know it's, it's great to just to be nominated, and you don't want to say that you want to win, but I have to win this, folks. I go, uh, my parents are here, they're from Queens, and they've been coming for four years because I told them, well, you're gonna come until I win. I go, I have to win, folks. You know, <laughs> and, uh, anyway, so then later, the, the award's up, and I win, and it was just, uh, it, it worked so well. And I got up on stage, and the first thing I said, you know, the, the parents are there, I go, Mom and Dad, we're going right to the airport. <laughs> yeah. um, but he was, I mean, it was, you know, he couldn't express if he was proud of me or not. Did he ever tell you that when you were young? I have to say no. I mean, I know, he, I, I, I know you know, he, he went to work, he went to school when I was two years old. He was still going to college to try to get his degree so he could get a judge. I knew he loved us, but no, he could not, he could not say it. Did he pass away? He died, yeah, he passed away eight years ago, yeah. And I remember in the hospital uh, when um, he wasn't, he didn't, it wasn't like he was on his deathbed, but he wasn't doing well. And I had to go back to LA, you know, I would come in and blah, 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 spend time. And I never knew when would be the last time. I remember leaving the hospital and uh, you know, it was hard for me to say because it was hard for him to say. It was also hard for me to say. I, I was leaving. I go, all right, Dad, I'm going back to L.A. He goes, all right. And I, and I said, nope, I'm going to say it. I go, I love you, Dad. And he goes, I know you do. And that, that was it. That was his way of returning it. Yeah, I know you do. God, I'm curious. In that period of 10 years of you doing comedy when your mom wanted you to be an accountant and, you know, it's obviously not the most stable thing, how you sort of dealt with, like, that relationship with your dad in your own head. You know, when I think back of myself, because a lot of times I think, you know, it's all bullshit about your parents and this and that, and you can't use them uh, as a reason why you're this and that. But sometimes when I sit back and I think of myself as a young kid, as a teenager, or even younger, I, I th and I think about what he was lacking, my father, even though I didn't feel it at the time, I, I kind of can see how that can mold a, a psyche of a young kid, you know? 
that there's somebody here who is, especially as a young kid, it's, it's, it's your universe, it's your world, you know? And he can show anger, but he can't show the other side. So you, you're constantly thinking, what am I doing wrong? What am, what am I lacking? Yes, right. Yeah. So when I was older and I was just trying to make my way and find out what to do, he, he really wasn't involved in that process, you know? He was, he was just busy trying to, trying to make enough money to keep the house going. And, you know, he just didn't, he just didn't have that part. He was concerned, you know? One of, one of the memories I have of my father is sleigh riding. And I'm, I must have been, I think I was in third grade. And I hit a tree and some other fathers came around. And I remember seeing my father run down the hill to get me. And the reason that stands out in my mind, because it's this moment of where I see. Oh, he cares about uh, Yes. Uh, you know, so it's, it's telling how that's an image that is still in my head, you know. And did that mold me into someone with this desire to perform, to act, to, to, to be someone, to, to emote, you know, which is what, you know, sometimes I wonder if I'm dr drawn to these dramatic roles now is because I have, I have this that I want to use. I want to, I want to, I want to connect with people with some of the feelings I have because some of the things I do in comedy where they identify with that I'm, sh I'm sure by the same sense they can identify with some of the feelings that aren't funny, that are, uh, you know, dramatic. Yeah. And probably in some cases that, that dramatic connection is, is a, probably a more um, realistic version of what's going on inside you. Yeah, I hate to, I hate to you know, you don't want to say, you know, the, the, you're, you're the sad clown, you know what I mean? I, I, I think we're just, I think comedians are just like anybody. Anybody, anybody you know has, has something, has, uh, has some kind of uh, uh, sadness in their life or thing they're, thing they're, they're yearning for, fulfillment or, or an insecurity. It's just part of life is dealing with uh, uh, some type of thing that maybe didn't get fulfilled or you need fulfilled. You know, everybody wants attention. Some people just need it more than others. I'm, I'm so lucky that I found a woman who lets me go and, and do what I do and doesn't, doesn't need, need it. And, and listen, I'm, I'm not my father, but I have traits. You know, I, I, I have a hard time uh, uh, expressing what I really feel to my wife. I, I say I love you to my kids all the time, and most, mostly because I know my father didn't, and I want to, I want to be able to, but I don't say it enough. And for my wife, who takes this back seat to all this, you know, um, I'm lucky that I met somebody who knows how to deal with it and can accept it, and and knows, you know, how I feel, even if I don't say it enough. <laughs> when she, when I won that Emmy, I, I hate to keep bringing this up, but that afternoon while we were getting ready for the Emmys. My wife said, um, you know, if you win tonight and you tell me you love me on stage, don't think that makes up for when you don't say it ever here. 
And I said it doesn't that, have more points. I, quoted, I said that <laughs> word for word when I, when I won. I said, I love my wife for a lot of reasons, but one of them is for what she said today. And I, and I uh, so my speech got written by the circumstances. I got lucky, yeah. You know what, though? I hear you talking, and I, I feel that I feel a kinship to what you're saying. And I think that when you're, when you have that kind of relationship with your father, you can't help but gather all the traits, good and bad, and right. it becomes sort of your legacy whether you want it or not. And lucky for us that you have this ability to observe and share in a way that makes your comedy, your stand-up, your, you know, your acting, your dramatic stuff you're doing really relatable and really, um, I mean, that's why I think, I think going all the way back to the beginning of, of when I photographed you for Everybody Loves Raymond, it's like, I, I had no idea, not only what you were capable of, but, but who you are as a person and talking to you now, seeing what it's all come together to, to create has been, you know, it, it's, it's wild and you're right. It, whether you're an actor, a comedian or a police officer, we all have, Right. the stuff that we have and um i didn't say i love you in that esquire shoot i know that no right? you didn't tell me you love me at all <laughs> that's why i wanted to have you back i felt it i, I wanted to hear it. it yeah can't hear you gotta you gotta just know it's there yeah <laughs> i love oh, you thank you man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. thank you for doing this oh i appreciate it man Hey folks, that's our show. That was a real treat for me. You know, I've really enjoyed Ray's work in recent years. I thought his portrayal of the photographer in Parenthood was really touching. And then I fell in love with Get Shorty. And obviously he was great in The Big Sick and Vinyl. And if you haven't checked out his new movie, Paddleton, it's on Netflix right now. The other thing that's on Netflix right now is his comedy special. So check all that out and take a dive into this guy's life because he's doing some fascinating work. And I really enjoyed talking to him on the show. You know, I enjoy talking to a lot of people on this show, and you can find every one of them if you go to offcamera.com. We've done over 180 of these things now, and we've archived all of them for your perusal and pleasure. Now, if you have DirecTV, you can watch us every week on Mondays and Wednesday nights. You can also listen to us right through this podcast. And if you haven't subscribed yet, take a minute, go to the Apple Store, subscribe to our podcast, and while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. That helps more people find us. And if you subscribe to the show, you'll never miss a week. Now, if you don't have DirecTV and you want to see what you've been hearing, you can check out our off-camera TV subscription at offcamera.com. That's a way that you can watch every episode on any device as many times as you want in the comfort of your own home or on your phone or on a train or on a plane or upside down or with a frown or with a clown. You can watch it literally any way you want. It's only $4.99 a month. And it's a great way to dive deep into these iconic artists' careers. So if you want to see what you've been hearing, take a minute and check out our TV subscription. Another way to get involved with the show is through social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. Also, I love hearing from listeners. And if you want to send me a personal email, you can do that. I'm Sam at offcamera.com. If you want some advice, can't guarantee it'll be good advice. But you can always try that. You can suggest guests 
or just tell us what you think and what you're doing with your own life and your own artistic career. I want to thank everybody that works on this show. Without them, we wouldn't have a show. There's Crawford Shippy, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. This is an incredibly loyal group of people, and we've been doing this together for a long time. And lastly, I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in each week and for helping us go along this journey. And if you're loving the show, take a minute and tell people about it. Go on social media, tell people to tune in and share the show so that we can spread the word about Off Camera. And most importantly, be sure to join me next time when I sit down with actress Lauren Cohan. I remember with a particular time on Walking Dead, I don't even speak about it fully without PTSD. You know if you meet someone and you feel that slight discomfort, like the ground is sort of unsteady and all you want to do is run in the other direction, facing up to that. I remember after we shot that scene, I threw up. I was so uncomfortable. Really? Because it was so impactful on the characters and on the viewer. And I look back on the moment and I was like, what does that tell you about yourself? That there was a moment that was terrifying and made you want to run away and it ended up being one of the most important things. And how do you now take that lesson and apply it to the rest of your life of when you feel really really uncomfortable just breathe and keep going through it and I just remember being struck with this like oh my god if it feels that way you have to do it you have a responsibility and it's really not until much later that I can look back and say you're irrevocably changed by this situation Lauren came to prominence by fighting zombies as Maggie Green in The Walking Dead and is now fighting terrorists and international baddies in her new show Whiskey Cavalier which is good old fashioned TV fun a la Moonlighting. And although Lauren seems capable of kicking ass and taking names in almost any genre, she is often bewildered at her capacity for projecting confidence. We take a deep dive into exactly what an unusual profession acting is and how being transplanted from New Jersey to London in middle school can be quite disrupting, to say the least. See you next time, off camera. <laughs>